This podcast is hosted by Chris Finkston and Spencer Oliver. They are both experienced paramedics. They've done everything from 911 ground ambulance to volunteer fire department work and are both currently flight paramedics. This podcast reviews scenarios based on real calls run by real out-of-hospital clinicians. Details are changed to protect the privacy of those involved and to present educational opportunities to the listener. This podcast is EMS 2020. All right, whatever. (laughs) Just welcome welcome to EMS 2020. Welcome to EMS 2020. We're suffering from a case of the Mondays. Well, I'm not. Chris is. Chris is. I'm just sort of watching uh, this a slow train wreck happen. Yeah, and uh, it's just a train wreck of a day. No, again, nothing catastrophic. It's just every little possible thing that could go wrong just to make everything harder is going wrong. And I, I just <laughs> basically Chris is floundering in a scene that's complicated, and there's no PIC. You know what? And he's it's- he's not even able to stand up and be PIC. Because it's like the minute you come up and get surface and you're like, all right, here we go. Yeah, I can do this. Another wave comes over and just fills your open mouth with water. (laughs) You know what I feel like it is? I feel like I'm a PIC that (laughs) that's actually really funny. Uh, I feel like I'm a PIC that is, is is realizing midway through the call that no one is competent. That nobody I'm working with because like everything that given there's nobody else in my life right now that's really messing things up for me. Like that's not what's going on, but it's just like every single task, like if all the tasks I need to get accomplished are actually all the people I have to work with, they're all falling through in some way. And I have to constantly readjust. And I, I just I want to be able to be like, all right, I set the appointment. It won't fuck up. And then I get a call back being like, oh, actually, we can't see your son today. And I'm like, awesome. That's good. That's great. That's perfect. I, I'm, yeah. I just, I'm, I'm over the day. I'm over the day. I also, um, whatever. So yeah, welcome to EMS 2020. Uh, today we're going to be doing a call. This is the show where we, we do that. We review calls, EMS calls and see if we yeah. can do them better. Uh, my name is Chris, obviously I'm angry. And that's, uh, that's Spencer and he seems happy, which is also making me angrier, I guess. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, I remember there's a Calvin and Hobbes article, you know, or strip anyway, where Calvin is out standing in the rain and it's, it's just like pouring, probably also a Monday, you know, and he's in his coat and he's like, I hate this. I have to go to school. It's raining like, Gah! and then Susie Durkins shows up and she's like, hey, Calvin. And uh, he, he just kind of scowls at her and she's like, well, fine. Like you just be rude. Ah! And she gets mad. And then. It cuts over to him and he's kind of got this like mean smile on his face and he's like, nothing helps a bad mood like spreading it. Yeah. No, it's just, yeah. that's yeah, that's how yeah. I feel. <laughs> well, Chris, I have a question for you. Do Speaking you? of things that could completely ruin your day. Have you ever noticed that every so often there's this perfect question that sort of lives like right on the edge of being really dumb or really smart? Um, and when thrown out by someone, anyone at a perfect time, boy, it's effects can be just devastating to your call. And, and yeah. what I mean is like someone asks a question or makes a statement, which in the moment, it just, it's sort of like, oh man, that actually is like, oh, I've never considered that shit like that. Is that a thing? Could that be a thing? Yeah. Um, and it like, usually these questions pop up when like knowledge from one area 
just kind of gets crossed over, maybe inappropriately, into a different area or like a concept. And suddenly our brains just kind of go like, ooh, man, I think these things definitely go together. Have you ever experienced this, Chris? Yeah, but they don't go together. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I have, and I have a brief story. This is a long time ago. It's on a call. Uh, typical like, oh, low blood sugar, diabetic call. We'll go ahead and we're going to give some, uh, we're going to get at the time it was D50, you know, we'll go ahead and give some D50. Uh, and my partner goes and starts the IV and then hands off the catheter uh, to one of the volunteer agencies that we're working with uh, to be sharpsed. Now, as we've talked about in this show before, you can check a CVG off of a sharps, uh, but of course that doesn't do us any good. However, one of the other members of the other agency then tells their partner, Hey, don't sharps that we can use it to check a CBG after he gives sugar. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. And when he said it, all of us are going to like, Oh Yeah. And then they're like, wait, no, that doesn't fucking work. work. No, that's dumb because you can't. It doesn't work. Blood is not Bluetooth compatible. It's not going to read the blood inside the body and be like, well, that's what my sugar should be, even though I'm not detached from the body that you have just given uh, the sugar to. So yeah, yeah. blood tooth hasn't been invented yet. But, <laughs> blood uh, tooth, it's, no. Well, it's red yeah. tooth, but yeah. yeah red um, tooth, sorry. <laughs> you or, you know, well, blue tooth might be appropriate then. In, uh, oh, very true. It depends on where. Yeah. Oh, I actually heard that your blood actually isn't blue. It is uh, when light refra- refracts through your skin, it gives it a bluish tone, but it's not. Uh, deoxygenated blood is not blue. Yeah. I mean, that's true. But for all intents and purposes, uh, I'm looking at it, uh, you know, a vein. Uh, and it looks blue, so right. I'm going with blue. Uh, so to answer your question, yeah, yeah, I've had that happen. I've been on scenes where that's happened. <laughs> yeah, uh, I've never been on a scene where that's happened. It, it's never happened to me either. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> really? like, because of one, really? I never connect dots that shouldn't be connected. Uh, oh. Nor have I ever been duped by one of those questions uh, when asked on a scene. Uh, I don't know if you know this, Chris. My nickname yeah. is Flawless. <laughs> <laughs> never. <laughs> Never make a mistake, uh, Oliver. That's uh, that's well, me. Uh, you know what, Spence? Uh, you're right. I mean, if you've never, you probably don't accidentally connect two dots because, you know, if you're not going to check CBG to actually find that dot in the first place to connect, then, yeah, you're probably not going to connect them uh, erroneously. <laughs> that could have been better. Uh, and, you've, and you've discovered my secret. <laughs> just don't do just don't do anything just don't do things and then you can't connect dots because there are no dots to connect anyway oh, that's fair. Uh, no i i bring this up uh because you know like uh, most of the time group think that kind of group t- think mentality that uh you know i definitely rely on um and i s- definitely support using uh, usually it catches mistakes like this you know like ideas that get kind of brought up that don't really connect but seem like they could in the moment um but occasionally a doozy gets through and well it's not the critical piece of today's call boy it's a wonderful example so i think we should move into today's call uh but first oh if you don't already please follow us on social media ems 20 slash 20 on facebook and ems 2020 show on instagram and if you want your call to end up on this show please email us at ems 2020 podcast at gmail.com and uh yeah we'll see what uh what we can do also each and every episode gets its own social media post and that is where you can go to agree disagree and uh or make funny references to things not clinically related whatsoever, which seems to be a lot of it, but you know, there's also a good, some good clinical discussion that happens uh, that goes on there. Uh, But before we dig too far into today's episode, I want to briefly touch on the SVT or supermeticular tachycardia versus sinus tachycardia question I posed on our 
uh, social media because we got just bucket loads of responses uh, <laughs> to that uh, that little blurb that I put out. And we got uh, a lot of different things. And a lot of people said, all right, if you can't discern P waves, then it's SVT. Uh, we got other things that uh, suggested uh, emails that suggested that, uh, you know, SVTs are SVT is due to uh, like a, a reentry stimulus. Uh, so <clears throat> while both of those answers are technically correct, the technically correct answer is that sinus tachycardia and SVT are kind of one and the same. SVT encompasses a category of tachycardia. It's basically any tachycardia where the stimulus originates above the atrioventricular node, uh, su hence supraventricular, uh, is technically an SVT. So sinus tachycardia is an SVT. What we are actually talking about, though, when we ask that question, because every paramedic, Spencer and I included, and we talked about this in the last episode, when we actually ask, hey, is this sinus tach or SVT, what we're really asking is, is the rate the problem and should we treat it? That's what we're yep. actually asking. More often than not, as a few listeners have pointed out uh, correctly, when we're saying SVT, what we actually mean is AVRT. And AVRT is um, atrioventricular reentry tachycardia. That is basically where you have a loop, a uh, stimulus loop that goes on that basically makes the rate, the rate go faster and faster. And in that case, you have an inappropriate rate. In other words, your body's not responding to a process where it needs the rate to go up. It's going up because something is broken and that needs to be fixed. So... Anyway, so uh, yeah, thank you, everybody, for responding to that. Uh, I got all the attention that I wanted it to. And it's exactly why I put it out. So it was it worked out <laughs> it, perfectly. It, it really is. It, it's 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 funny because like, you know, like, we're, you know, it, it's one of those like topics in EMS. It's sort of like religion or politics. Oh, yeah. It's like if you want people to have strong emotions or feelings about things like bring up SVT. And just watch everyone like <laughs> right watch everyone's face melt like yeah. they were indiana jonesing right exactly so uh good and thank you guys for all the positive comments about the um about the title because i came up with that title so yeah no it was a it was a it was it I, I loved it so much when you uh you uttered that joke in the uh episode oh, yeah. it was just it was every so often there's a home run hit uh, and you had it on that, on that call. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so All right, hey, it's phenomenal. One more thing before we start, guys, go over to guardiancme.com. It's a good place to keep an eye because that is a platform that's being started by our good friends at guardiantestprep.com that will be a free continuing education platform. Uh, we all need continuing education. You'll just be able to head over there and you'll be able to find our content on there and boom, you can get credit hours for listening to our podcast. So it is not up yet so you can go over there drop your email and we will email you the moment that it is uh, up and running and no we're not going to spam your inbox yeah please go do that um i hope that chris and i aren't uh going back and uh formatting all our previous episodes <laughs> for nothing for nothing because uh, boy yeah. Oof, that, yeah that would not <laughs> that would yeah there's a, a process you have to submit <laughs> outlines for everything to get them accredited and so we're going back through every episode we've ever recorded and we're making outlines all new outlines for them and it turns out our old habits how we used to do show preps are not helpful <laughs> at all super unhelpful oh, all right let's get uh, yeah, no, I, yeah anyway all right let's get this ball right. rolling we are uh we're lagging boom all right so uh let's go into perspective first uh so Tonight's escapade is brought to us by Red Shirt. 
at the time of the call, Redshirt was a three-year EMT who's in their second semester of their paramedic academy. At this academy, the students go on clinical rides with the local fire department to perform their skills. Uh, and they do this, uh, they do about like nine of these rides each semester until the end when they do about 10 more rides as the lead or PIC. So that's sort of their internship portion of that. Um, that gets them, this method, this sort of style gets them all their calls. They get to build skills and field experience at the same time. And some students even start leading calls before they would in their, in that like final internship period, hmm. uh, little earlier on so you know there's some definite benefits to that um and so anyway that's what's going on here redshirt is participating in this call as a student in their second semester uh anyway as we're already discussing personnel let's talk about the other crew on this call lieutenant tiberius james kirk is the medic and officer, lieutenant rank, uh, assigned to the engine at this station involved with this call. Uh, additionally, on the engine, we also have their paramedic partner, uh, Spock, and uh, their EMT partner, Chekhov. So I don't know how I missed the red shirt reference you made earlier. It didn't make sense to me. Now it does. And now I'm really concerned. Yeah. Um, you'll see. Uh, <laughs> God. Is this the first episode? Oh, God. Someone's going to die. This is going to be terrible. On the rescue, someone who's not the patient, hopefully. Yep. Yep. On the rescue, that's the fire ambulance, uh, is paramedic Bones McCoy. Bones recently graduated from the same uh, academy that Redshirt is currently attending. Uh, they were moved to this station for this shift. This isn't their typical assignment. And they have a few years at this department as an EMT prior to this. Um, so new paramedic, not new to the agency, but on loan to the station. Okay. Uh, additionally, assigned to this rescue shuttle is EMT Sulu, who had been working about three years with this department. All right. So Bones, knowing where Redshirt is kind of is in their academy process uh, did offer to let them command any away missions that their shuttle may be assigned to during the shift. But Redshirt declined the leadership role, kind of requesting instead to focus on their skill building. Uh, they were really kind of working on IV skill building at this time, I believe. Um, all right. So the last thing I'll mention about this team, but I think it's an important dynamic. Uh, Red Shirt describes the crew he's working with as a well-oiled machine. I, it sounds like these guys show up and just get stuff done really well together. That's good. So That's awesome. Yeah. It sounds it does sound like Red Shirt's pretty, pretty happy with uh, the department that they're working with. From the for the most part, uh, I think they do feel like it's a it's a beneficial learning environment, and they did graduate, and they are now a uh, paramedic. So nice, it got it it did work. Yeah. Now there um, is one thing I, I do want to point out is that so well well oiled machines. That's the kind of crew you should strive for. Everyone kind of be in there. I can tell you that uh, thinking back to my own student days and bringing other students up through the system. Um, this sometimes can actually be kind of a hardship for some students because sometimes well-oiled machines are also, are also uh, tightly built machines. And so it can be very difficult mm. to find your place in that machine when everyone you work with has kind of an established flow and role and division of work uh, among their partners. I've also seen students throw off the dynamic of these well-oiled machines as well. So 
yeah this is true yeah no i i, I think you're definitely right i think th- this is sort of where having training people specifically training not just good paramedics but you know people who actually have an interest in training and who are willing to kind of break their machine to allow a student to come in and uh, like those th- that's that's a really great thing just because somebody's a great paramedic or works really great in a team doesn't always mean that they're great teachers i think that's a really good point yeah um yeah all right well uh Let's discuss the star system uh, that our heroes are exploring for this episode. <laughs> Cheese ball. Uh, uh, in this part of the country where uh, these folks are serving, there's a fire response and transport with an engine and rescue being dispatched to all calls. Uh, it's a county run system. Uh, it, there are neighboring areas which do have differing systems like private ambulances, etc. cetera. Uh, and th- those guys can come in and provide mutual aid to this area as needed, which actually probably happens a lot because there are only two rescues for this particular service. Um, it's an urban area. They have about four to five stations and they run about 50,000 transports a year but respond to about 80,000 calls a year. Um, so, you know, not not the busiest system, but fairly busy. Yeah. Uh, they do 12-hour shifts on the medic. There's a variety of hospitals which do things. Um, yeah, anything else you want to know before we move on? Uh, no, I mean, unless... Unless the hospital choice is, is going to play a role in this, uh, in this call, I'd want to know a little bit more about the hospitals that do things, um, but... The hospitals don't pl- for this call. They basically have the uh, a similar setup. Okay. So, um, yeah, no, nothing, uh, nothing where the hospitals will definitely play a choice into. Okay. So that, so probably, that's okay. my vagueness. Sounds yeah. good. All right. So let's move on to the call. The start date is three point one four one five nine two six five three. Isn't that pie? And it's maybe <laughs> it's twelve fifty four thirty six. Redshirt scrambles aboard the rescue shuttle as it has just been dispatched to a nearby health clinic. Mm. The dispatch complaint is for a male with an ICD, that's an internal cardiac defibrillator, which is firing. The engine, engine SS Enterprise, will also be going with shuttlecraft rescue for this mission. All right, so in route, they learn that the call is coming from a doctor's office. And throughout the trip, Bones expresses their sincere hope that uh, Lieutenant Kirk and the uh, SS Enterprise will arrive first and cancel the shuttlecraft rescue, allowing them to return to their station and uh, dock. Yeah. Uh, I'll admit, to me, this seems a tad on the hopeful side, (laughs) but, you know, I I guess maybe there's nothing actually happening and it's a false alarm. You know, like... I don't know what it would be in this case. Like, I don't know. Maybe uh, there's like an exposed wire at the doctor's office and the guy sat down, but his pants were wet and the exposed wire like touched the bottom of his pants. Electricity, of course, then went up uh, to where the water touched his belt. Uh, And then, of course, there's like metal buttons connected to a shirt. And so it just arcs up the shirt. uh, And then he goes like, ow, fuck. Uh, Oh, I guess my ICD fired. But it really didn't. Uh, like, I don't know why you would want to, like, what you would think would cancel you off of that, but, like, maybe that's the case? I don't... I don't know. I, yeah, I don't... 
I I would agree. I, I think that is a long shot for a, for a cancellation. <laughs> that being said, I mean, hope for the stars, man. Like I've had calls where I'm like, how did this cancel? But uh, I mean, I didn't question it, you know. Uh, yeah, no. Like, if, I, if, if I'm not on scene, how, how about <laughs> I shouldn't say that. I have definitely questions when I've been on scene. Them been like, yeah, Pace doesn't want to go by ambulance. I've been like, well, hold up. There's a knife in their face. Um, but like, yeah. But in this case, like, I have to admit, if I'm not on scene, I've never been like, no, we're we're arriving and we're gonna redo this examination. That I have never done. I'm not this saying I'm not saying there's no scenario where that would be appropriate. I am saying that in my career, I have not found a scenario personally where that has been appropriate. That's weird. Uh, I guess there's no medical need on this cardiac arrest. All right. Well, let's uh, let's turn around. Yeah. Uh, well, they do arrive to a doctor's office at about the same time the engine does. Lieutenant Tiberius Kirk departs the engine and immediately walks towards the lobby doors of the building. Uh, Red shirt jumps out of the shuttle and just kind of like runs to catch up to him. Uh, Bones and Sulu will bring the cot from the rescue shuttle with them. Paramedic Spock and EMT Chekhov uh, will brag their monitor and their kitten for the call. Uh, the unofficial rule here is like try to keep the ambulance stocked. So as it's all the same equipment anyway, the engine tends to bring in the stuff and the ambulance just brings in the stretcher. Lieutenant Kirk and Redshirt arrive to the lobby and they find a 74-year-old male sitting in a nearby chair with a staff member from this like doctor's office next to them. Uh, patient's about six foot tall, 175 pounds, and is described as just very pale, diaphoretic, and very uncomfortable in their appearance. Oh, yeah. Not um, getting canceled for sure. Yeah, it becomes very clear very fast why the patient looks uncomfortable because the patient just suddenly flinches like they've been hit and they scream out in pain. That ICD in their chest strikes again. Uh, Kirk immediately starts talking to the patient, introducing themselves and like asking the patient for their name. The patient is alert, oriented to person, ow, place, time, <laughs> And ow, vent. Oh, Jesus. Lieutenant Kirk. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Lieutenant Kirk continues to interview the patient as the fleet, you know, the rest of the fleet kind of make their way in with all the equipment. Well, Kirk does their thing. EMT Chekhov grabs the pulse oximeter and the NIBP cuff out of like the monitor pocket and put them on the patient. Bones and Sulu stand in the background with their stretcher. Uh, again, there's an employee from that doctor's office that's there, but Redshirt doesn't believe that anyone talked to them at this point or at really at any point during the call um, to get any information from. Now, like th this may have been like a non-medical person, you know, and or they might not really have had like much of a story to offer. Yeah. But I, I still think it's an easy like this is a missed opportunity to like obtain easy medical information or like demographics. Uh, just another quick question. Did they by chance have the patient on a monitor when the crew arrived at the doctor's no. office? Oh, okay. Nope. Well. Nope. Um, Seems like a yeah, poor place nope. for this patient to be. <laughs> yeah, no, no monitoring, just sitting there out on the bench with this person nearby who wasn't talked to. Um, so, you know, it, again, it's not really a problem in this case because the patient's able to give the crew information. Um, so I guess let's just talk about what uh, he told them. All right. So here's the history of the present illness. Uh, the patient is in the process of undergoing an AV node ablation. Uh, they have a history of AFib with frequent bouts of uh, like a rapid ventricular response or RVR. Uh, that 
I'm presuming hasn't responded well to the standard treatments and they have now progressed or escalated to the solution of, okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to put in a dual chamber pacemaker slash ICD in the patient's chest, and then they'll go through and ablate the AV node, thus sort of terminating the connection between the atria and the ventricles. Um, you know, because that AV node uh, seems to be letting all those uh, you know pesky AFib wow. impulses It's through. getting fired, basically. It's just, uh, it is. Yeah. <laughs> like uh yeah no two week i guess there is a little bit of notice yeah there is there is for god (laughs) hey man we're gonna burn you alive you're just not doing that good enough job so uh, (laughs) yeah it's uh, a fiery death you don't have any more it's like dr evil from austin powers where he puts everyone to the burning pit when he fires them it's the same thing that's how we treat (laughs) our av node I, I like it. No, that pesky James Bond impulse got past you again. <laughs> Dead. Yeah. Sorry. All right. <laughs> no, it's perfect. Uh, so side note, typically what happens in this process is that uh, what they'll do is they'll try all these medications. They won't work. And then what they'll do is they'll put a pacemaker ICD into the patient first. And then after they've established that there's no problems, then they'll go later and do the AV ablation. Uh, so today the patient was coming in for a pre-op appointment for that ablation, having already had the pacemaker ICD put in, um, at the time of the onset, the patient was at their appointment and heading back to see the doctor went out of, just like suddenly out of nowhere, blow, the shock started. <laughs> I fucking hate that word. <laughs> I know you do. Cause time's that's up why it's over. There. Blow. Blow. Snap back to reality. Anyway. (laughs) Yep. So that's when the sharks started. The the sharks started. The the sharks. The sharks started. You know what? Uh, (laughs) Never mind. Go ahead. That's that's fine. The sharks started. Perfect. Yes. So they do have, the, the patient does mention that they have an external heart rate monitor, which connects to their watch. Um, I know what they're talking about because I have a similar setup for some of my stuff where, you know, the heart rate strap makes the heart rate measurements that the watch does way more accurate. Uh, but really important detail. This is rate only, not rhythm. Okay. But the patient um, has a so, rhythm that's measured. No, the patient has a rate only. Oh, And the gotcha. patient's watch indicates that they have a rapid rate of 198 beats per minute. Hmm. Um, so... Uh, and their ICD pacemaker is also participating in that every 15 to 30 seconds, it's just firing, uh, into the patient's chest, you know, cause you know, it figures the patient's heart needs a good, like phaser set to stun blast. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, uh so these that's been going are on. not going to die down, are they? No, no, they are not. Perfect. Yep. Uh, so this has been going on for about 10 minutes. So prior to this event, the patient admitted that they don't feel that they didn't really feel well and that did have a little chest discomfort described as a two out of 10 dull ache. The deny any shortness of breath with this or like that previous uh, chest pain event. The real problem started when and Chris, I've never heard of this brand, but maybe you have the fucking pacemaker ICD started to go off. Um Now, again, I've never heard of the fucking brand dual chamber pacemaker ICD. But I certainly can tell you that uh, you should not Google that at work, as I've learned. (laughs) 
so really? yeah, the uh, yeah, the fucking dual chamber <laughs> pacemaker and ICD fourth generation. Yeah, yeah probably. Gotcha. Uh, started firing two to four times every minute, which feels like a horse kick to the chest each time. Uh, the patient is able to provide meds, allergies, medication, all of which Redshirt doesn't remember. And really importantly, the patient reports that they still go into bouts of AFib RVR and explicitly tell the crew, like, this is what's going on here. So the it's patient AFib actually. RVR. Oh, wow. So the patient actually used the word RVR. Nice. AFib RVR. So here's the vitals we have. We have a heart rate of 198 and a regular via the pulse oximeter. And this is confirmed by the patient's watch and their heart rate strap and also a uh, quick pulse check. Uh, Non-invasive blood pressure from the monitor is 168 Mm -hmm. over 100. The respirations are reported to be 22, non-labored. The patient's 94% on room air, and the skin is pale, cool to the touch, and diaphoretic. So, Lieutenant Tiberius Kirk says, Okay, uh, you have a history of AFib RVR, which uh, hasn't been fixed, and you're having a bout of AFib RVR. Well, uh, let's get you out to the ambulance, get an IV, and we'll uh, get some Cartizem and uh, out and get you feeling better. So, Chris, I want to hear from you. What are your thoughts so far on what's going on? I mean, it sounds like... I mean, AFib RVR could be the direction we're going. It sounds plausible, but have they have we put him on a cardiac monitor yet? negative we have not okay can we because i think that's the thing i I know this isn't my scenario like i don't get to choose my own adventure in this but we should okay (laughs) so this is where reality is going to split chris will have put the patient on the monitor and he'll get to see what he gets to see yeah but this crew doesn't uh with this direction from lieutenant kirk the like all right let's get you out to the ambulance get an IV and some cardizem in you. Uh, with that direction, Bones heads out to the ambulance <laughs> to set up their IV stuff and get the cardizem out. Uh, Redshirt and Sulu bring the stretcher nearby while Chekhov and Spock take off the pulse oximeter and blood pressure cuff to have the patient move to their stretcher. Spock then goes around to help the patient by lifting kind of under their shoulders, you know, just stand and lift them and assist them over to the stretcher. But prior to touching the patient, the patient jumps and screams as the ICD again delivers a shock. Uh, and Spock asks Lieutenant Kirk, like, hey, can we get shocked if we're touching him when that thing goes off? I don't think you can. And there's a pregnant pause followed by. No, you sh- should be fine. <laughs> That sounds super confident. I, I, I'm, I'm going to go with like a kind of like a 55% certain response. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Which is enough for uh, me to tell you to do it, but not for me to do it. Gotcha. <laughs> but Redshirt noticed that there was actually now a lot of hesitation in touching the patient by everyone, especially after the question was asked. Uh, Spock did go behind the patient and help lift, but they and everyone else helping uh, immediately would let go when the patient would get shocked by their ICD. Um, <laughs> I, I, I should. I, I should. We be dropped fair. him like, nine wanna... times uh, from here to the ambulance, <laughs> but. <laughs> stretches right there you know just like oh brief let go it's like that guy who catches the ball while holding the baby they briefly like they have their beer in the right hand their baby in their left arm and then the ball comes and they're like 
eating beer or baby. Right. And so they let go of their baby, catch the ball, and then grab the baby. That's nice. yeah, That's what happens here. Yeah. I mean, uh, all right. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, 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 go on. I just want to point out really quick. If you're able, so, so do you know the sound an ICD makes before it shocks? No. Oh, that would be zero sound. It makes none. Yeah. So you know it's shocking <laughs> when it's shocking. So if you are letting go, you would have been shocked. So you're probably fine at this point. But I get it. It's fine. And, like, but, but, you know, there's also, I, I, I understand when, when, when the looming threat of death is there, we tend to be a little bit silly about things. If you want, like, listen to our... Uh, Oh, gosh. We did an episode where these guys uh, thought they got carbon monoxide poisoning or thought they were in a carbon monoxide environment. Uh, and oh, it was a yeah. plugged in stove, which doesn't produce carbon monoxide. And they all kind of freaked out. I understand it. When your life's on the line, we tend to do things that are a little bit silly. But anyway, keep keep <laughs> yeah, keep going. I, I also think it's fair to caveat this. Like when someone is being shocked by their ICD, like it is is violent it it is startling every time it fires uh for them and also anyone trying to do medical things Mm -hmm. to them um so like they could be a little hard to hold on to maybe that was that we weren't there but it's also clear to me that this concern was prevalent and uh we'll see that play in coming up Anyway, the patient does make it onto the stretcher without being dropped. Somebody immediately slaps a non-rebreather at 15 liters per minute on the patient's face. Um, The patient's wheeled out the doors of the building and towards the ambulance. And once in the ambulance, you know, the red shirt's in there, Bones is in there. Bones tells red shirt that they need to start an IV. Uh, (laughs) They need to get the patient back on the monitor stuff uh, and... (laughs) Sulu, by the way, refuses to take a regular blood pressure on this patient and decides like, hey, we're just going to put them back on the non-invasive blood pressure and the pulse oximeter. Why did Sulu so, refuse? Do you, do you think it's because they're worried about getting shocked? Yes. Okay. That, gotcha. uh, that was the. At least they're consistent, you know, at least yep. <laughs> at least they're consistent in their fears. Yep. So. Cardizem is fetched and given to Lieutenant Kirk, who starts drawing it up. Their AFib RVR protocol indicates that the dose is going to be 0.25 milligrams per kilogram Hang on. to a max of... Yep. Have, have they put him on a monitor yet? <laughs> Chris, come on. <laughs> <laughs> of course they haven't. Okay. All right. we're, yep. we're really rolling the dice in this treatment, but okay. All right. <laughs> so... <laughs> There they were to a max of 25 milligrams for their IV bolus for this patient. Now, their patient is 175 pounds, so they know they need to convert into kilograms. That's 175 divided by 2.2, which comes to 87.5 kilograms. Great. But now they need the dose that they want to give to the patient. So they multiply those kilograms they just got, 87.5 times 0.25 and they get 21.875 milligrams perfect that's how much you need to give but how many mils is that well now they have to do a little more med math assuming that the vial has 25 milligrams of drug in for every milliliter of fluid and knowing they need to give 21.875 milligrams perk solves it this way they put the number of milligrams they need to give over the total milligrams available in the vial. 
they divide those numbers and then multiply that uh, answer by the total amount of fluid in the vial. So in this case, it's going to be a one cc vial with 25 milligrams. They need to give 21.875. And, and so they know that the total vial fluid in the vial is one. So divide 21.875 by 25, multiply that by one. And so Kirk drew up 0.875 mils of fluid, which is a smidge less than 0.9 mils. And he has that ready to go for the patient once the IV is ready. I applaud them Me for the math. That math is absolutely 100% correct, too. So, solve right. work. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, Redshirt has gotten a 20 gauge out and opened it, but they have yet to stick the patient because they want to wait till after the next shock. To be clear, the rationale isn't that they're going to be get shocked because they don't really think they will, but rather they realize that there's a high potential for the IV to start to go wrong should the patient vilely twitch, yell, and retract their arm which yep. so far they've done with every shock they've received. Yeah. So, Chris, this is actually a real, like, this is a real operational struggle. What it would is. you do to um, manage this problem? Yeah. So, uh, I put the monitor on. Um, but, <laughs> but, uh, barring that very sensical intervention, um, what I would do, so yeah, I mean, it is an absolute, problem because if the guy gets shocked again and you got a needle i mean you could poke yourself you could stab the patient with it it's not good so what i do is i'd keep the patient informed i wouldn't use a normal tourniquet because normally when you use an iv you tourniquet uh proximal to where you're going to be starting uh just to make the veins pop up and i tell the patient exactly what we're doing hey we're going to use these soft restraints and we are going to just kind of temporarily tie your arm in place uh, so we don't end up poking you and i don't imagine oh. the patient would have a problem with that so what i would do is i'd put one soft restraint um above uh on the forearm probably just distal of the antecubital because uh, and, and I, I think trying to go higher than the antecubital is going to be really hard to actually stabilize the arm so you're probably going to be looking at a forearm and distal IV um, mm. so I would probably go ahead and stabilize uh, one there and then put one around the wrist uh, just so that way it's secure to both joints and then start the IV and then kind of go from there because I think nice. if they twitch you'd probably you may still end up missing the IV because even like a sudden like forearm flex can really change the geography but at least your likelihood of injuring yourself or your patient with the needle is a lot lower if it if it can't move that much so that's what I would no, do that's a that's a really good idea. I hadn't actually thought of the soft restraint. What yeah. I was thinking was, hey, you have your partners, the partners of plenty, jump in and, and help out by like holding the arm down or, you know, like stabilizing that arm. Yep. Um, you know, it's, it's not great. Again, the patient can still move, but mm. it's something. Um that yeah, would be no, great. A, the, uh, the only thing is, so, and, and that if you have to go higher than the antecubital or antecubital and higher, I think that would probably be the way you would have to go. But I know the problem with holding down that arm with a bunch of firefighters is you are going to minimize your room because people are going to have to try and get into position to do that, to actually be able oh. to hold. Yeah. And so, no, that's I, a, yeah. And so I, I think that if, if you can do the tie downs, uh, you might, might be a little bit better off, especially in this particular case, if everyone is worried about getting shocked, like, mm -hmm. which to me kind of cracks me up. It seems like everyone's worried about getting shocked, but they're still putting red shirt in. They're still yeah, no, that, like, that, here's, they're still <laughs> be like, here's the IV buddy. Uh, we think we're going to die, but, uh, you, uh, yeah, you poke them. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're all going to stand back and watch. Uh, yeah. You go. You got this. 
You'll be great. Here's your phaser. You're going to be the first out of the shuttle on this planet. Hence uh, the name Red Shirt. I like this. That yeah, makes sense. Yep. All right. So they're on this task alone and waiting for that next shock to start the IV as no one is going to assist in holding the arm because no one wants to touch the patient. Yeah, there it is. At risk getting shocked. <laughs> But here's the problem. The shock isn't coming. And Spock, seeing the IV size red is selected, advises Redshirt that a uh, 20-gauge IV would not make logical sense for this patient and advises them that a real Starfleet officer would utilize a larger bore needle. Um, uh, good gravy. Probably. Redshirt is compelled by this argument. And for the sake of comedy, uh, let's agree now that as soon as Redshirt like begrudgingly like moved the 20 gauge away from the patient to trade it out for the 18 gauge, the patient got shocked. And then they missed that brief start window. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. I hope. Anyway, so they get out an 18 gauge IV and go back to the same spot they were. And they're just kind of trying to wait for a shock. But now, basically, everyone is just sort of like watching and waiting for Redshirt to do this thing so that they can continue on with the call. So Redshirt kind of goes like, fuck, I shit, I I might as well do it. So again, Redshirt has already got the site selected. They've got their stuff prepped and they were basically just waiting. So they just go for it. They get flash in the chamber, indicating that they've hit their target and they start to advance the catheter in. But they do something different here than their standard process. Uh, this is something that they say they've never actually done before, and they're not really sure why they did it this time, but they are glad they did. So what they did was instead of pushing the catheter in with that right index finger, um, you know, that kind of pull, pull cue, you know, the, the stick move, uh, what they did was they actually used their left hand, uh, with their thumb and the left index finger and just push that catheter in with that other hand, uh, This ended up being a great move because when the patient was shocked by the ICD and did retract their arm before the IV was secured, as we all knew was going to happen, uh, Redshirt was actually able to use their left hand to pin that catheter down into the patient's arm, which prevented it from pulling all the way out. Nice. Got halfway, but it was able to be advanced again, still flushed, flowed, all that thing. So... Not only did they survive the ICD shock while touching the patient, but they also established their goal of nailing the IV start. It's a win-win. Nice. But now, Chris, and I'm imagining you'll have feelings here, Lieutenant Kirk hands the just shy of 0.9 mils syringe of cardizem to Redshirt, (laughs) indicating that this is the next appropriate step to take. After applying the monitor. (laughs) Redshirt takes a syringe. And what do you think happens, Chris? I am going to hope that Redshirt says, uh, hey, why don't we put the monitor on first? Because I I hope Redshirt doesn't just push it. Because we don't know what's actually going on. I mean, I, I agree. It's probably a FibRVR, but <laughs> should really make sure. Yeah. Um, hmm. So Fuck. here's what they say. They take the syringe prepare to push it, but then set it down on the bench and say like, hey, shouldn't we put the patient on the monitor first? And they laugh and they say, why don't you go start another 20 gauge? (laughs) And at that moment, everyone just sort of does this collective like, "Uh, yeah, yes, we should. Nice. (laughs) So the (laughs) leads are pulled out, put on the patient, and they look at the monitor and behold, 
a wide complex tachycardia with frequent pauses, brief bouts of AFib with like a narrow beat, followed by a PVC, followed by another run of a regular wide complex tachycardia. Beautiful. So basically this guy, this guy's having runs of VTAC on top of his AFib. Yes. All right. Uh, Oh, uh, by the way, Chris, I know this is going to be your next question. Yes, a blood sugar was taken <laughs> off the IV start. It's 108 milligrams per deciliter or 6 millimoles. Nice. I, I, yep. Perfect. perfect. All right. So with this change, paramedic bone says, uh, I'm no doctor, but this patient needs amiodarone. <laughs> or would they say, I am a, I'm a doctor, not a paramedic, but this patient needs, I don't know what they would say. Anyway. They say they need amiodarone. Their lieutenant then draws up 150 milligrams of amiodarone and puts it into a 100 mil bag, hands it to Bones. Um, Now, this is a cool thing that this service has. They have a drip set that they're able to change the rate on. Um, And what I mean is they're able to change like the drip concentration for their IV set. So they can select it to be like 10 drops per mil, 15 drops per mil, or 60 drops per mil. So gotcha. Um, So just to kind of let me just kind of flesh this out for those that may not be familiar uh, with how drop sets work, because we do have like people that are EMD basics some people that aren't even in the field. Yeah. Um, So basically what you have is is um, the line that you spike a bag with so you have like a saline bag as an example and you put a line into that and then that goes to the patient well that line you control you can on almost all of them you can control the rate actually on all of them you can control the rate at which whatever is in the bag uh, infuses into the patient by how many drops per minute what you typically cannot control though is what each drop equals. So when you have like a 10 drop set, what that's telling you is that every little drop you see in that drip chamber, uh, 10 of those will make a milliliter. 15 drop set takes 15 of those. 60 drop set, 60 drop set takes 60. And usually you can't adjust that. So this is super fascinating that they have one where you can. That's awesome. Yeah. No, it's uh, it's very cool. Uh, yeah. So, but, you know, Bones stares at the drip set uh, and realize that they like they have no idea how to calculate a drip rate for this. So they ask uh, Redshirt for some help, and Redshirt jumps in to do so. Um, and I, I guess I should add that Redshirt is possibly an android. Uh, right. nice. th- they were able to do this math in their head and respond, uh, it'll be 100 drops per minute using what? that 10-drop set. Using the 10-drop. Okay, gotcha. Yep. I will add, like apparently like Bones doubted this, but Redshirt... Did the math in their head a second time and got the same answer. So like Bones was like, yeah, all right, I guess we'll go with it. Richard's like recomputing <laughs> math confirmed. Yeah. So they open they open that train, you know, the uh, roller up, roller clamp up and aim for that hundred no. drops per minute in the drip chamber. And they end up taking off code three down the road towards a cath lab capable hospital. And if anybody wants to know the math on that, that math is correct. So the goal is you have to give 150 milligrams over 10 minutes, right? And you're putting that into 100 cc's. So you have 100 milliliters and then you have a drop set that's set to 10 drops per milliliter, right? So basically Mm -hmm. you need 100 milliliters to go in uh, over 10 minutes, which means you need 10 mls to go in every minute. And so 10 drops times 10 mLs equals 100 drops. So 100 drops a minute. Absolutely. I, I, side note, it, if you ask somebody and they do math in their head and they give you an answer and it, like I, it, asking them to do it again 
and, and cut, like, hold on, could you do it again and like make sure the answer is correct? Like, I, I, like, does that provide you more comfort? Because I can tell you, I've asked my daughter, like, I'm like, hey, uh, you know, what's five times four? And she'll give me the wrong answer. I'm like, yeah, what's five times four? And she'll give me the wrong answer again. Like, I, she'll give me the same wrong answer. It's not. Uh, like, I don't know. I, I think it might. Like, like I think it's sometimes like I know, like I've been in places where I. So I, I will say this. I'm good at med math. And, and I, I know that I'm a weird effing zebra. I was not good at med math at one point in my life, uh, especially when I was yeah. first starting out. It took me many, many years, but I finally got pretty darn good at med math. And um, I will tell you, when I give a calculation like that and someone kind of says, are you sure? It does make me like, all right, well, let me double check and make sure I'm sure because people do make mistakes. So I I don't know. I, I think, yeah, I, I, I think I, I think it's worth like, especially if you doubt it, you know, I think it's worth asking. I, for me, I'm going like, uh, can, can we do this on, like can we do this on paper yes. like if, if, a, if, if a partner has an established history of like being part robot and they're right. able to do that then i'm like okay cool like i've got you know i've got my iphone calculator here uh just a living version of that walking next to me on this call but otherwise uh, you know like if i don't know that then i'm like hey, we need paper because i need to like i need to i need to be able to see the process yes. yeah you know like i can't just put in empty digits and then, like, have someone spit out a number without being able to see the work that happened in between. So I guess that's my thing. If if uh, if Bones was like me, and they're like, mm, "I need a process," and then they give their student another number, like a number, and they're like, mm, "You better double check." And the student gives the same number, like, I, like I still haven't seen the process for how you got to it. Very true. I, yeah, my confidence. Yeah, if you give me the same number, my confidence in it hasn't changed. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Uh, anyway, um. Yeah. So uh, here's what happens. It's about an eight minute transport. Uh, and very early on in this transport, the patient reports relief and there's like a noticeable improvement in their color and their presentation. They also stop getting shocked, which I'm sure also yeah. part of that relief. Um, a second IV line is established by Redshirt really quickly, like two minutes into this transport. And then a 12 lead is performed, which we don't get to see. And neither did they. Um, so they don't know what it showed, but we do know that four minutes into the transport, the medication was slowed down. Uh, the rate of the medication administration was slowed because the heart rate patient's heart rate was coming down significantly. And then about two minutes later, it was just stopped. They stopped the fluid or the medication <laughs> because the patient's heart rate got into the seventies. I am so they glad said you said they stopped the fluid because you started off by saying like, yeah, the patient's heart rate was slowing down and then a few minutes it just stopped. And I'm like, holy shit, this went bad. And then you said the fluid was stopped. And I'm like, okay, wow. good, good, that's good. Fair. No, <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. It's just me keeping you on your toes. Yeah. I appreciate that. We should have, we should have been. And then it just stopped. All right. And on next week's episode, <laughs> <laughs> which you're not going to listen to because that pissed you off. So <laughs> there we go. All right. So they have an estimated like 10 to 15 mils in the bag, in their fluid bag at this point and the, you know, the fluid in the chamber. So uh, other vitals beside the heart rate of seventies, 150 over 92 respirations, 18 SPO to hundred percent on that non rebreather at 15 liters, the patient's alert and oriented without pain or complaint. And the skin again is returned to normal. So they get over to the ED, they turn over care, and true to form, we know nothing. No, oh, We know nothing perfect. that happened. So EMS, so, in other words. Yeah. But we know enough, I think, 
to review this call because there are definitely there are definitely some interesting uh, some interesting things to talk about. All right, so uh, let's get this straight here. So we have uh, we have we have a starship that gets dispatched uh, to a space station. I, I can't do it like you can, man. I'm trying, but anyway. <laughs> so, so we have a crew that gets dispatched to a doctor's office uh, for uh, a male in in their seventies, right? Something like that, seventy something. Yeah. All right. 74. Yeah. A 74 year old male uh, who is getting shocked by his implanted uh, cardiac defibrillator, uh, which is, of course, no fun. Uh, one of the responding crews really hopes to get canceled, which I, I don't know how the ambulance is going to cancel on this one. But hey, you know, hope for the stars. They arrive on scene to find this guy has a watch that's saying, hey, my heart rate is irregular and too fast. The patient says, I have a history of AFib with RVR, which is amazing that he just had that, you know, whipped out like that. And they proceed to notice that this guy is getting the crap shocked out of him. Everyone is afraid that they're going to die uh, from getting shocked, which, again, like, I don't know 100 percent. I'm pretty sure that doesn't work that way. And what also makes me pretty sure is the fact they were holding on to this guy while it was shocking and then letting go, which means you weren't getting shocked because yeah. anyway, uh, but again, when your life's on the line, we do silly things. I get that. Uh, moving past that, they get pretty settled in. They're going to push Cardizem uh, on this fella uh, without putting a monitor on him. But then thankfully, after the IV is uh, started in what has to be one of the most tense IV starts ever um, in terms of like, you got your window, get it now. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> it's like whack-a-mole IV. There it is. Go. Uh, but anyway, so uh, after starting the IV, thankfully, Red Shirt says, hey, before we push this cardiac drug, maybe we should put on the cardiac monitor. And people are like, oh, yeah. And they do. And what do they find? They find this patient is having runs of ventricular tachycardia, uh, to which you don't want to give cardizem for. And so they decide to give amiodarone instead. They give amiodarone uh, over 10 minutes after Redshirt does some amazing cyborg math. And uh, yeah, it works. The runs of VTAC stop. The heart rate starts to lower down to something more reasonable. The patient feels a lot better. Uh, and the vital signs are good. And the patient outcome is we don't know. So there's that. Perfect. So uh, in this, clearly there are some, you know, you've identified early on, there, there's some skips steps in mm -hmm. this assessment. I mean, at least um, one. And then, of course, there was the question that was asked that broke this entire scene. Uh, yeah. So uh, there's quite a bit to uh, quite a bit to cover. But I think a couple things we really should review before we go too depth, too in depth in our review we should probably talk about ICD pacemakers and uh, maybe kind of touch on cardizem for wide complex tachycardias. Yeah. So uh, let's begin uh, with pacemakers. So um, hmm. uh, <clears throat> pacemakers uh, first invented by uh, Dr. Thaddeus Pacer, uh, introduced at the 1915 <laughs> World's Fair, old San Francisco, with uh, Dr. Thaddeus Pacer's avoid your maker, keep your heart safe from the undertaker with this electrical heart rate pacer. Uh, shockingly unsuccessful at the time. But this, uh, this seems false. <laughs> what, what, I, what I'm going to say is we don't know for certain it didn't start that way. Uh, I mean, like, no, we I'm do pretty sure that, we do. Yeah, pretty I, sure. I, like, we, we know they emerged probably in like the 1960s in some collaborative effort between a couple doctors. But more importantly, I don't care because none of that shit matters for this call. We're not going to talk about that boring stuff. What we really want to we really want to know for this call is like, hey, what are these things? What do they do? And what was going on with this call? And 
By the way, also, can those things shock us if the providers are touching the patient when it fires? Which, you know what? Let's just go ahead and deal with that now. No. No, they cannot. Um, I'll just, yeah, we'll just give that one away. Uh, just to be sure. Hold on. I'm going to Google this. And, uh, yeah, here it is. No, you cannot be shocked. Oh, uh, you cannot be shocked and get this. Even if you're both in a pool together. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, uh, yes, you cannot be shocked by someone else's ICD unless you're, I don't know, maybe if you're performing like the internal cardiac massage that that one EMT in that one episode was doing. Oh, yeah, yeah. The Swedish. No, no, no. The Swedish, the Thai <laughs> the, the Swedish. Uh, yeah. We Thai <laughs> stretch massage is what we landed on. Yeah. It's the best. <laughs> it's clearly the best. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so maybe in that situation, but beyond that, no, you will not get shocked by someone's ICD. Um, it will startle you when it goes off, but it will not shock you. So right. there it is. It, it's so more likely startling you because like you're feeling them twitch. You're like, oh God, what was that? And that was what yeah, it is. And they yell loudly. That's it's always yeah. scary. I don't know mm-hmm. why. Anyway. Uh, so let's talk about pacemaker. So pacemaker ICDs. Uh, boy, I, I, I thought to myself, like, what a delightfully, like what a delightfully simple lesson. Uh, when I was getting this call, it's like, all right, this is going to be a really easy topic. It's not going to have any like nuance or really like complex, heavily involved science behind it. I mean, come on. It's just like some trodes and a heart attached to a shocky thing. Right. Um, right. Yeah. Right. Well, well, how it, complicated it could that be? It's actually super complicated. Uh, uh, so I was getting Wait a second. Bioengineering is complicated. That. Whoa. I, I, My mind's blown. Yeah, tr- <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so this is sort of what it was like uh, when I was getting information on this. It, it, it's sort of like that one scene in the like Matrix where like Neo goes up and the guy's like, oh, check it out. Like I'm watching people walk by up. Oh, there's the red shirt girl. And it's just like code. That's just yeah fucking flying through the screen that's basically how i felt in trying to learn about these gotcha. uh, so what I, basically what i'm saying is we're just going to abbre- abbreviate everything i've learned um and i'm going to try and like present it to you guys in easy digestible bits uh just please understand i'm speaking in very broad generalizations there may be some variance uh when you get into like the weeds of this topic so Basically, pacemakers and ICDs are technically two separate things or two separate functions, but these days, almost all ICDs have pacemakers or vice versa. Oh, gotcha. But regardless of if they're the same device or not, they are still two separate functions. So let's talk about those. Simply put, the pacemaker feature sets the rate for the heart, thus pacing it. Um There are a variety of pacing methods. Some sense the atrial and the ventricular rate and pace. If either fall below, it's like the the set rate uh, programmed parameters. Well, others just sort of like asynchronously pace the atria or the ventricle at a set rate. Um, There, my understanding is there is some sensing the computer does, but you know, basically it's just like, nope, we're going to fire as you know at this rate as often as we can or as close to this rate as we can. Mm. Um, These are all very small impulses that people do not feel. Uh, Really quick. Did you look up why someone would have a dual chamber or just have uh, just a ventricular or atrial one? 
Oh, yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, simply put, the most common one seems to be the ventricular paste one. So that's the one that's kind of plugged into that right, right ventricular site. But in some situations, they do go with just the atria. And my understanding is like that's more the case when it's just the sinus node that sucks, not gotcha. the AV, like not the AV track. Um, so when some patient has something like sick sinus syndrome, where it's just like it's firing and it might fire very slow, but everything else is fine, conducting fine, then okay. they'll do that. Um, but if like if there is a situation where like the AV track might be damaged or you know not functioning very well, then they'll go with the ventricular paste uh, or both. Uh, and the benefit that I'm reading that I read about for both is that there is some believed benefit to having that, like maintaining a sequenced contraction for the heart. Um, yeah, there may be other factors or conditions which go into like who gets what, but we know that our patient had a dual chamber one. Um, and as pacing doesn't really factor into the call beyond the fact that like they had it, um, and the other function of the of their device does let's just kind of move on to the icd function right so the icd portion is essentially just kind of providing like an overwatch to the heart uh in my simple brain what they do is they sense a wide complex tachycardia and go like oh shit fuck shock it <laughs> and then they discharge about like 30 30 to 40 joules like directly to the heart so that is the sound the that event. it makes right before it, it shocks so maybe that's what the providers were hearing they're hearing like this little ah shit and they're like oh let it go <laughs> yes that's that's it exactly yeah um but by the way th that is super simple it gets really really in depth uh most modern machines are programmed with a variety of like cool tools and tactics to manage a, like a multitude of problems that could arise so like they'll monitor rhythms they can distinguish between svts and wide complex tachycardias and they can factor like the rate rhythm and the duration for which uh, of, of both of those into the treatment path that it chooses so what it often will do is it'll often start with some anti-tachycardial pacing in the most simple terms what it's trying to do is it's just trying to break the circuit that's perpetuating the ventricular tachycardia by overpacing it through the pacers. My understanding is that like what this hopefully will do is interrupt the timing of that ventricular tachycardia cycle, which should kill off that bout of ventricular tachycardia because there are like refractory periods following depolarization. Um, so if it can do that and it can, you know, cause a refractory period instead of having that, you know, impulse fire from the ventricles, then that should terminate the ventricular tachycardia. But again, it's, it's far more complicated um, and a ton of things get factored in. There are actual like adjustable parameters for how long the device should try this for. If you really want a really cool in-depth, uh, far simpler explanation, check out Life in the Fast Lane. They have a really cool video, which you'll watch and you'll feel smart. But if you really want more in-depth stuff, then go to a Medscape article on the subject uh, which like details precisely the, all the mechanisms and the factors as behind like how this device can operate. And then you'll also feel very overwhelmed and dumb like I did. <laughs> Perfect. But really like the important takeaway is that this feature works by trying to overpace the ventricular rate. And so like what patients will often experience is sort of like a fluttering chest sensation at worst. There's no pace with like, there's no pain with this. Okay. Now, if that doesn't work, 
we can talk about the defibrillation, that horse kick. Uh, there are different settings depending on the device, but my understanding is that most newer models have that like anti-tachycardial pacing, and then they have like a low shock or a high shock. The horse kick that this patient experiences is the high shock, and that's the higher setting of like 30 to 40 joules, and it hurts like hell. And most devices go through a series of pre-programmed actions based on all those things, that rhythm rate and other presets. But then eventually they'll go like, all right, now we have to shock. And they recognize that like, uh-oh, rhythm. None of these things worked. Now we're onto the high shock. Boom. So when one of these fires off, a good guess is that something bad is probably happening with the patient's heart because it can differentiate between wide and complex and narrow complex tachycardias. And from the reading that I'm doing, it doesn't try to defibrillate uh, with those higher shock settings, narrow complex tachycardias. It saves those for the wide complex tachycardias that continue on unbroken for periods of time. So like a round of like a quick run of VTAC might get through, but sustained VTAC for longer than that, it'll go through the pacing, low shock, and then that high shock. Gotcha. But there are mistakes this machine could make. And I've definitely been on calls where a machine has missensed or fired. Like there's, you know, degradation of the device or battery. Probably not the case here, given that this is a new device in this machine. Um, some cases it might misread arrhythmias. Uh, we talked about in an episode a long time ago that like uh, a flutter, one to one a flutter can look like a wide complex tachycardia, even though technically it would be more of an SVT that can that can misfire on um or who knows maybe it's like skynet just trying to terminate <laughs> this uh this particular patient this guy's done uh, nice yeah just like you know what uh all right now we activate the device activate so the kill switch basically this patient was john connor <laughs> this patient was john yeah. connor you know that, that's that's one of the things that doesn't make any sense about terminator whatsoever is they just need to go back in time to kill one guy and they couldn't pull it off and, and you're like an invincible machine i i think he could have done it I feel like, yeah, yeah, really taking the long way around on yeah. this. Anyway. They, they sent back these big machines. Little did they know, they just had to send a pacemaker back and would have handled it. It's <laughs> perfect. The treatments that we would provide these patients would be based on kind of the rhythm that we're seeing. You know, like if you see a patient who has a sinus rhythm and they are being inappropriately shocked, then you would want to try and do treatments based on that. Some machines uh, have like a, some services have a magnet, this sort of a donut shaped magnet that you can actually tape to the patient's chest around the pacemaker, which will stop the pacemaker ICD. Again, the, there's protocols that go with that. Uh, some it won't work with because, you know, like uh, my understanding is that some machines have like a little off switch for the response to magnets. So uh, yeah, there's that. But really, like if you show up and on this call, I think it's they should have suspected a wide complex tachycardia, given that the patient's just being frequently shocked by their ICD, knowing that it tends to shock and defibrillate uh, wide complex tachycardias. That that's probably what they should have suspected here. Put the monitor on early and found the rhythm. And then, you know, if it's a bad rhythm, then you just address the underlying rhythm to stop the machine from shocking the patient like these guys did. Had they found the patient in an RVR with a fib, then cardizem may have been an appropriate medication here. Amiodarone, also an appropriate medication in this situation with right. a wide complex tachycardia. Um, yeah. 
another thing to consider is if you're giving patient an antidysrhythmic and it's not working and they are otherwise stable, you know, their blood pressure is not going down, maybe some pain management would have been a good thing to consider too. Yeah. So for this call, I think knowing everything that we know, uh, they definitely should have been more suspicious and put on a monitor. Um Assume the bigger shocks are more likely to be associated with like a wide complex tachycardia. And I'll admit, like, that's something I didn't know till I just heard you talk about uh, pacemakers and ICDs. But hey, that's why we do this show. Um, yeah. And also know this. You won't get shocked by another person's uh, ICD. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and listen for the swearing. And that's when you know it's about to go off. <laughs> that's when you know. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, Put your ear up uh, to the patient's chest, like right by the pacemaker. That's the best spot to hear it from. Yeah. Well, let's. Uh, <laughs> so speaking of that, though, let's talk about cardizem. Okay, yeah, because that's. I mean, that's the other piece on this call is the cardizem. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's fair to like call this a near miss event for the drug error. Yeah. Given that it was like the, the vial was drawn up and handed to the student to push prior to the monitor being put on. Um, and obviously, as Chris, you pointed out, like you've picked out like this is the blunder of the call. Right. This is the thing that they made a mistake on that could have ended up being devastating to the patient. But, you know, I think it's kind of fair to wonder, like, all right, devastating? Or is that too strong of word? Like, is this really a big deal? Because, you know, like amiodarone can sometimes help like AFib RVR. Would cardizem be okay to give to somebody who's having a wide complex tachycardia? What would happen if they gave that uh, 21 milligram uh, cardizem bolus? Yeah. Know, Chris, do you have any idea? Well, uh <laughs> No, I don't. But uh, here's uh, here here's here's my thoughts and kind of why I was like, hey, like, don't give cardizem if you don't know what it is. Uh, so cardizem, what I know about cardizem is that it is a calcium channel blocker, right? And so yep. the reason we like to give it for things like AFib RVR is because the AV node uses calcium to transmit the impulse from the top half of the heart to the bottom half of the heart. So when you're in AFib RVR, the problem with that is RVR, by the way, stands for rapid ventricular response. So when you have AFib, the top of the, the the top half of the heart is just kind of a wiggling. And those wiggles are basically a bunch of tiny little independent impulses, right? And so every now and again, one of those impulses gets down to the AV, AV node, causes a stimulus and causes the ventricles to contract. And that's why it's so irregular. Well, as long as it's not doing this at either a too slow or too fast rate, it's fine. We don't really need to treat it. In fact, a lot of patients are basically just placed on an anticoagulant so they don't form clots and they live with AFib. It's not terribly uncommon. But if it's happening too much and it's too fast, you give a calcium channel blocker and then fewer of those stimuli would make it through uh, the AV node uh, to cause ventricles to contract. So I don't know 100% sure that it would cause a bad thing to happen or why it would cause a bad thing to happen with um, VTAC, but I'm decently certain that it wouldn't help. What I also know is that I've seen enough different protocols out there where it is contraindicated in wide complex tachycardias um, that makes me believe that, okay, if it's contraindicated, then someone out there there's probably some data somewhere that says it could be harmful. So I'm kind of curious to, to hear what you have to say on it. But that that's where I said I would not want to push a drug uh, for a rhythm that I didn't know what it was. <laughs> no blind pushes, man. Yeah. Live a little. Jesus. All right. All right. <laughs> yeah. No, you are. You're, you're actually right on the money. Deltiazem is a, cas- a calcium channel blocker. Uh, and technically, 
ooh, and I'm going to struggle over this word, so hang on to your seats. It's a non-dihydroperidine calcium channel blocker. Oh, yes, which means yes, that non-di- it, non-dihydroperidine. Yes, uh, yeah, yeah, of course. Absolutely. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, which, mm-hmm. which only means that it affects the heart and the arteries. Frankly, I like uh, the pro-dihydroperidine uh, um, calcium channel blockers myself. okay so what you need to recall is that calcium is what permits your arteries to constrict and your heart to beat faster and stronger so calcium channel blockers block those specific effects there's two types there's that dhp the dihydroperidine calcium channel blockers which affect arteries only and don't directly mess with the heart. Those are used for instances like patients who have like high blood pressure. These are drugs like amlodipine, nifedipine, philodipine. And, and side note, DHP calcium channel blockers always end in depine. Interesting. So that's, yeah, that's a fun cool. one. It's sort of like the beta blo- beta blockers with the LOL. They always end in a lol. 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 Lol, <laughs> your heart rate's lol. too slow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And the non-DHP are essentially two drugs. It's verapamil and diltiazem. They work on both the arteries and the heart. So they cause vasodilation and they slow things down. And here's the mechanism of action, which you basically described. It slows the actions of the SA node and the AV node, (laughs) uh, which makes it a great agent for patients with AFib, RVR, because it's going to be able to slow not only the heavy fire of atrial impulses traveling to the AV node, but also slow the impulses that are going through the AV node getting to the ventricles. What it's not good for? Ventricular tachycardia. This medication is actually contraindicated via multiple sources, specifically for wide complex t- tachycardias that are presumed to be VTAC. Okay. And uh, in EMS, we should just assume... Wide complex tachycardias, regular wide complex tachycardias are VTAC until proven otherwise. Like that's, that is the, yeah, that is my, that is the hill I will die on. Um, so the problem here is that, uh, administration of this medication in this instance where it's a wide complex tachycardia far too often precipitates cardiac arrest. Hmm. Um, and I don't, I did not, and this is the thing I don't like. I didn't get a good understanding of the mechanism as to why this happens, but I can tell you people far smarter than me are very insistent that it does happen and that we should not give this medication in those situations. So I'm going with that. Um, There's other cautions as well, like suspected, uh, you know, uh, acute myocardial infarction being one of them again. And on this call, that would also be a concern I have. Like he had a little chest pain prior to, he, you know, he's in a wide complex tachycardia. Mm-hmm. All of that, all of that needs investigation. Uh, you also don't want to give it to someone in heart failure as it's believed that the dilation of the arteries also will make them leakier. Um, edema is a pretty common side effect of this medication. Uh, so like if fluid is already a problem, this could make that worse. And you don't want to give it to somebody who's already taking beta blockers as that will slow their heart rate down to nothing. Or if they have a history of uh, WPW, definitely don't give this medication. Uh, and we'll talk about that perhaps one day, not today, but the quick and dirty of DILT for this call, cardism, diltiasm, shortened to DILT, 
this was a near miss on a meta like this was a near miss of a medication error which could have been fatal to this patient from the pharmacology literature we have available yeah so now that we're all caught up on the things we need to know before we really review the call let's just jump in and review the call let's do it so um for the pregame they're sitting there talking about how they're hoping they'll get canceled. I, this would be a call that if I had a student, I would totally be asking like, hey, all right. So we got this call at this doctor's office. Maybe there's someone whose ICD is going off. Like, what are you what are you thinking of? What are you concerned about? You know, throw out a couple possibilities. Think of a process. Yeah, the, one of the and one of those possibilities, by the way, is like, hey, this patient might be trying to arrest. And it's Absolutely. not a small possibility. Like, no. so it's funny to me that these guys are kind of like, ah, oh, come on, big money, big money. Cancel, <laughs> cancel. Like, it's well, just, I mean, like, maybe, you know, now that I think about it, if they're hoping for an arrest, cancellation could happen. I mean, they could go there and the guy could be on the park bench just completely dead. That, that that's true i mean i feel like you'd probably end up having to worry that'd be a weird one to justify like <laughs> yeah i know icd firing a couple minutes ago but like oof, dependent lividity uh yeah. boy that end title of uh 40 is pretty low i, right. uh, <laughs> I like to see yeah. 45 in my patients um, yeah i mean yeah he's still technically guppy breathing but like i mean come on look at that heart rhythm of uh, v-fib uh, uh, of right. systole of course systole can we even do like, anything for that? Anyway, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that, that would be a hard one to push. Uh, no, I, I, I agree. The, pre, the pregame would have been good on this one. And also another thing is, this is also kind of a nice little niche one. Th- these calls don't happen a lot. I've been on one or two uh, ICD firing call. Well, maybe more, but I haven't been on a ton of them. They're not super common uh, ICD misfires. You know, it's kind of one of those calls that every experienced medic has a story about it. But you don't like you don't go into work being like, yep, going to run an abdominal pain, some IFTs and definitely an ICD going off. Like it's just it's not a common call type. So it's also good to ask. So it's also good to, you know, yeah, get your uh, get your student thinking about like, okay, how do we determine if it's necessary and what do we do if it's not? Oh, yeah. What you know, what do we do if this thing's going off when it shouldn't be? Because that's kind of a rare intervention. And what is you use the donut magnet to disable them? Most agencies require you to have online medical control contact before you do that. And for good reason. Uh, and that is because if it, if it should be shocking them, that's a good thing. And turning it off is a bad thing. So, yeah, especially if it's yep. also pacing their heart. Yes. So yep. that's yeah. yeah. Not, not great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if, if you guys aren't aware, there is a little circular magnet that can be placed over a pacemaker uh, slash ICD that will uh, that will shut it down. So, and what I don't know, I don't know if it shuts the pacemaker mechanism off or just the ICD. But I can tell you this: I'd be really hesitant to shut it off if the pa- if we have a patient that relies on that pacemaker function too. <laughs> that would mm-hmm. be like uh, I don't want to do that. So, uh, anyway, as I mentioned, ad nauseum. Uh, not getting the patient on the monitor right away to see what the rhythm was uh, is a pretty substantial miss uh, in, in this case, because that is kind of the key piece of evidence you need in this call. And I think this is actually one of those calls where pre-gaming would probably have helped with that. Get everyone in the right mindset to where, hey, when we get on scene, we need to figure out why this thing is shocking and then throw the monitor on. Um, one of the big things about this is... <laughs> It was a little bit four-year medicy in the sense of a pathway was found early and without much additional 
investigation was accepted as truth, right? So I, they got. I yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. I'm glad you're bringing this up. Yeah, because they they kind of walked in and they they were given an explanation that made sense, but it was subjective. They were basically given the explanation by the patient. It seemed to fit. And it's what they wanted to do. And so they didn't really do any investigation to further it. And that's kind of the quintessential four-year medic mistake is that, okay, uh, I've got an explanation here that seems to fit. I've seen this explanation before and it fits. So I'm just going to assume it's that and go down that route without doing a thorough assessment. The classic example we always bring up is the pneumonia versus uh, pulmonary edema patient, right? And that is like, hey, it's pneumonia season at the uh, care home again. We have a patient who's short of breath again. And we go and we look at them and their, their lung sounds sound wet but if you want them to they'll certainly sound more like mucus and pneumonia uh you know if that's what you're thinking bias is strong even when we're objectively examining somebody or maybe they don't even listen to the lung sounds like i heard it across the room sounds like really bad pneumonia and they go that direction with it and then it's like oh no what you should have done is listen to lung sounds gotten a better history realized there was some precipitating chest pain and do the 12 that you didn't do because you thought it was just another pneumonia patient which by the way even pneumonia patients you probably should be doing a 12 lead as well anytime someone short of breath um because as i will always say just because someone has pneumonia doesn't mean they don't have something else so um but that being said uh this is kind of a classic example of that found an explanation that fit and ran with it and and it does make me wonder sort of the the overall description of like hey these guys are so efficient they're like a weld oil machine i'm like you know like some part of efficiency might be skipping steps and there's this belief that like hey we got there in the end we got it quick you know, bada bing, bada boom, we're done. And it's like, yeah, but, but you just you just cut out a, all these steps to right. get there quickly. And again, and, this yeah. system isn't set up to give you follow up if you don't go chase it. So yeah. we bring patients to the ER all the time. We're like, bam, nailed it. And it's like, no, we didn't. But nobody told us otherwise. And so we assumed we did because we believe that if we fucked it up, someone would have said something. Again, I'll, I'll touch on the possible miss with the doctor's office staff member there again, like sometimes they just have a better history or just different history or, you know, or something or fuck, maybe even just paperwork that you later won't have to get from the patient. I I would say don't neglect them. If you can, again, we weren't here in this situation to really kind of determine like maybe this person didn't know anything and they're just like, Oh good. EMS is here and our liability ends somehow. And they like disappeared, but that happens there. Get that person if you can find out if they know anything. Um, yeah. So um, let's move on to the treatment. Um, I I love the IV idea that you had with the soft restraint. I think Time that's down. a really smart move. Um, uh, you know, assistance, if you could get your people to help you, uh, also a good move. But in this case, uh, I'm going to go ahead and give uh, red shirt credit here on that IV start. That was yeah. A nice way to to pull that off and well done. Yeah, especially as his partners left him to, in their minds, potentially die like that. Yeah, <laughs> that's. I don't want to touch it. It could hurt me. Go get him. Go get him, Tiger. You, you got you this. Know, yeah. So they got that in, and uh, and then they avoided the medication error by you know checking back. Going like, hey, we should probably assess the rhythm that we're treating before yeah. we actually do that. Oh, and speaking of assessment. There wasn't a, it doesn't seem like there was a great assessment done. We didn't get lung sounds mm-hmm. um, and some other pieces that I kind of would have wanted, um, yeah. you know, to really be sure, you know, hey, what was it? Yeah, like, it was febrile, 
you know, yeah. sick recently because all those things could also play into why his heart rate's high. Um, you know, Clownfish learns his ABCs is another episode in which, you know, th- things get missed because people focus in on a rate problem. Um, That's anyway. absolutely true. And, and it's one of those things where we say this a lot in this show, but people can have more than one problem and people often do have more than one problem going on, especially like as you get older. I mean, a classic example, like would be the septic patient. Okay. Uh, if you are a patient with an infection and you are septic, uh, that's not easy on the rest of the organs in your body and your heart's included. So if you already have a sick heart, you getting sicker from a infection does not, is not conducive to that heart performing well. So, you're going to be looking at uh, you could be looking at like compounding issues. And that's why we always say it's cheesy, but do that full on NREMT uh, ABC LOC sample OPQRST assessment, like do that whole thing uh, on every patient because you're going to find some things and you're going to have some really cool doctor house moments, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the amiodarone uh, drip real quick. Yeah. Uh, Cause this is sort of an interesting one. So recall that they started the amiodarone, uh, then they start transporting. There's eight minutes total for their transport. Mm-hmm. And about four minutes into the thing, they're going like, ooh, we got to slow this drip down. Right. Because they only had like, what, 15, 10 left in the bag? Yeah, they, they think they went like a couple minutes longer and then they just stopped it. And when they stopped it, there were about 10 to 15. So they're, they're you know, six minutes into a 10 minute drip. There's only 10 to 15 mils left. Yeah. You should have uh, had 40 mils left. <laughs> so so it, we went a little fast. It's, it's going a little too fast. Um, I, I'm glad that they checked it. I, I don't know if I would have stopped it. I probably would have like, you know, slowed it. I would have kept it yeah. going slow because, you know, we, we want to make sure they get the, the full drug, but we, you know, I don't want any unwanted effects. The heart rate going into the seventies to me, isn't the unwanted effect. Like their blood pressure is yeah. still good. The patient's still reporting relief. I'm not seeing anything that's really no. concerning, but I, I get it. I, I think the big takeaway here is like, don't use the 10 drip set. If you have the option of a 60 drop set or, you know, even better, if you have an option of a pump, put it on a pump, right. let the pump do the work. Then you don't have to count drips or any of that stuff. Yeah. But I think, a 60 drop set, it's a little harder for the medication. Uh, and this is just my, in my head only. I think it's a little harder for medications to kind of run away from you because, you know, it's 60 drops per milliliter instead of 10. It's a so smaller, it's, it's a smaller lumen. So it can only go so fast. The 10 drop exactly. set can go a lot faster. It can go, you can, you can, uh, you can lose track of a lot of fluid real quick with a 10 or 15 drop set. Yeah. Uh, and when you're giving a medication, yeah, you probably don't want to lose track of that. Yeah, so, absolutely not. <laughs> I would say in that situation, like the, the better thing to do would have been to use the 60 drop set and done the math with the 60. It's still an obscenely high number of like drops that you have to count. Oh yeah. But you can actually like you could probably watch it better. I, I don't know. What do you think, yeah. Chris? Well, I mean, yeah, I, I there's plus and minuses to uh, to either side. The, the hard part about a 60 drop set would be the nice thing about a 100 drop set is that it comes down to one about one and a half drops every second to get to 100 drops a minute. And that's easy yeah. to watch versus the 600 drop set. You'd have a, a ton trying to flow through there. And then that might be <laughs> that might be harder to yeah. count. So here's the one thing I would say. If you're not using a pump, first of all, like 
try and push your agencies to get pumps. But if you're not going to be using a pump, one of the big problems with uh, gravity dripped in medications is that the drip rate can change dynamically based on the patient. The patient can move their arm. Uh, their vascular resistance could change at some point for whatever reason, because we do that in this job. Um, you know, especially yeah. if you push that calcium channel blocker you weren't supposed to earlier. Um, <laughs> so, you know, and now you've got some vasodilation going on. Um, but anyway, so yeah, there's not, um, you know, there, there's, there's too many factors and they will change. And that's why I really don't like the gravity fed infusion. So what I like to do is here's the thing like, okay, you know that you should be getting 10 mLs in a minute for this particular patient. So check in five minutes. Are, is 50 mLs gone? Nope. More than that, slow it down. Less than that, speed it up. So if you're gonna, if you don't have a pump to use, then you need to commit to making sure the appropriate amounts of volume are going in over time. If you don't, you're gonna wind up with the same problem. Yeah, but you know, I I'm glad that they were. If there was a concern that they stopped the medication, um, you know, I like think they did fine. I mean, I I, yeah. I don't. You know, I mean, it's. Well, I, I, again, like it's hard to use gravity, uh, gravity drips uh, in, in the sure. first place. And um, I, how about this? I think they did fine giving the amy amiodarone. I don't think they did fine not putting well, the fucking monitor on if I haven't made that clear. <laughs> but there's that. Well, actually, Chris, let me give you some more information. Uh, oh, goody. That you m may change your mind here. Um, so I got the protocol for this agency for stable wide complex tachycardias. And so here's what it says in a stable wide complex tachycardia uh, with a pulse that first they want you to start out with adenosine, but that's only if it's really like very, uh, you know, uh, regular monomorphic VTAC okay. as there's pauses. I think they probably did the right thing and just skip past that. That's my opinion. Um, so they went, their, their protocol is actually for amiodarone, five milligrams per kilogram up to 300 milligrams mixed in D5W and administered over 20 minutes. Oh, so, which is essentially no, the same rate. I mean, 150 over 10 or 300 over 20. Oh, well, max of well, 300, it's five milligrams, five milligrams per kilogram. So they'd probably be at 300. So it would have been yeah. the same rate, more or less, had they, you know, it, Slow, yeah, the slower down, the slowed down rate from what they had. Uh, but yeah, but but here's the problem: no one on this crew uh, did that, no, or knew that, uh, or stepped in to be like, actually, our protocol is this. Uh, so really quick, if they are if they are greater than sixty kilograms, they're getting three hundred. Exactly. Just, just and this patient, so, so adults is what this boils down to. Yeah, and this patient was oh, what was it, eighty seven kilograms yeah. so yeah. yeah he would have gotten the 300 over 20 instead of the 150 you know, 140 over 10 or whatever yeah. <laughs> it ended up being um i guess the thing that sort of like makes me like raise my eyebrow is like nobody nobody knew this now redshirt further says like hey we don't we don't get their protocols we have our school protocols that's what we're taught and then yeah. we go out there and we just use our school protocols and then you know the the agency when the school and the agency's protocols don't line up, then they go with the agency's protocols. You would have but, to. Yeah. Yeah. But in this case, nobody, uh, <laughs> and nobody did that. And they, the, the student's every, protocol yeah, okay. is pretty much bulk standard a, a American yeah. heart association for white yes. complex. Yeah. 
exactly. Yeah. No, they, so they felt like they're like, yeah, this, this sounds good to me. Like this sounds appropriate based on, you know, what I've been taught. Um, but you know, there's three medics who work for a service who completely whiffed their own, uh, white complex tachycardia protocol. Like a well-oiled machine. All right. Like a well-oiled <laughs> machine. Exactly. So, All right. Um, sorry, go ahead, man. No, um, and then I guess the only thing I'd say on handoff is, you know, if you can get follow up, uh, in this case, the student totally not able to, and the uh, crew did not either. So, oh boy, well, that's too bad. Yeah, I'd be curious to know what happened to the guy. I mean, right? He probably turned out okay. Well, <laughs> yeah, sure, it was fine. Yeah, sure, it's fine. <laughs> I think we've rehashed it. Well, we yeah. just say like, I think we've rehashed the learning points enough. Yeah. Let's go into an awkward as fuck ending. Right. But before we do that, let's make sure that you guys go ahead and check us out on social media. We are on Facebook at EMS 20 slash 20 on Instagram at EMS 2020 show. And if you want your call featured on this show, shoot an email over to EMS 2020 podcast at gmail.com. And by the way, each and every episode does get its own social media post. Uh, so you can go over there and comment about what you liked, what you didn't like, uh, or something entirely unrelated, which, like I said, happens a lot. Um, also, head over to www.guardiancme.com. Drop your email address there. We will let you know when the free continuing education platform by Guardian is up and running. We will not spam your inbox, and you can head there to get continuing education just for listening to EMS 2020. Now, Spence, please be awkward. Call! Oh, my God. <laughs>